the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This episode is a rebroadcast of The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Coming up this hour, 57% of the people in the United States who were surveyed are looking for this. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. We've made it to the weekend. Hopefully you are driving home and you are looking forward to some uh, just some rest and relaxation, whatever it looks like for you to unplug over the weekend. Uh, we are all over the social medias, as the kids say. Uh, <laughs> we're on the gram. We're on the, the Twitter. Yep. Yep. On, on the Facebook. Facebooks, Twitters, and Instagrams. That's where we are at Common Good Talk. <laughs> Wait, and don't forget Alexa. You can say, Alexa, play yep. AM 1160. Hope for your life, the common good. And she turns it on for you. She does. Okay. I, I teased this earlier. There was a new poll that came out. Uh, that said 57% of people surveyed in the U.S. Uh, are searching for very something very specific. Let me read the article from Christian Headlines to get us into it, because I'd love to know kind of your feedback on it. It says, a worldwide pandemic apparently has led Americans to think more about the meaning and the purpose of life. Hmm. According to a new Lifeway research survey, which found that 57% of U.S. adults during the pandemic say they ponder at least monthly the question, how can I find more meaning and purpose in my life? In 2011, that number was down at 51%. Wow. 21% of Americans think about the meaning of life daily compared to 18% in 2011. An additional 21% said they ponder it weekly. Uh, but compared to 2011, Americans are less sure about what lies on the other side of death, according to the poll. Only 43% of adults strongly agree that there is more to life than the physical world and society. Uh, in 2011, 67% of the people agreed with that oh, statement. Oh, interesting. So it's really turned. There's other stats in here that are interesting, but that's kind of the headliner that increasingly people are looking for meaning, purpose in life, and there's got to be more to this life. So before we make the obvious tie to churches and Christ followers yeah. and the opportunity that's out there, uh, what do you just think about those numbers in general? You know, I would... Uh, what it brings to mind for me is that the pandemic uh, for the first time in a while caused us to think about our limited humanity yeah. and our uh, frailty, right? The fact that death is a reality. And I, I think it can be easy as Americans to go through life not thinking that we're going to die. I, I don't know what it is about Americans, but we are so sure we're going to like never die That's an right. untimely death. And so the pandemic, I think, scared us, especially early on and forced us to consider um, our life expectancy for the first time. Yeah. And because of that, of course, you begin to question what is the meaning of life? What do I want to leave as a legacy? And then what am I what does death even mean? Yeah. What it, you know, and so I, I do think it's interesting the way God works that even in this 
really horrible pandemic, certainly this is opening people up to be very sensitive to the gospel in a way maybe they weren't before. Yeah, I think that's well put. I, I do think it's this idea of meaning and purpose. People have looked at a pandemic around them going, gosh, everything, you know, uh, it doesn't matter how rich somebody is. That hasn't helped them from the pandemic. Yeah. It doesn't matter necessarily what uh, race. I know I know things have broken down a little bit around socioeconomic and sure. racial, but in sure. general, uh, it hasn't been, you know, all the poor people got sick or all this or all that. And, and I think it's made people go, wow, there must be more to life than how much money I make or yeah. uh, how many possessions I accumulate or how much fun I have or whatever else. Uh, and it has caused people to go, OK, uh, what is there that's out there? Uh, so I, I'm not surprised by this. It is very telling. What would you say then? What's the opportunity here? How can the church step in here uh, individually and corporately and go, hey, you know, we've got the answer. What, what does that look like right now for the church? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it, it's an incredible opportunity for the church to say we have the answer in Jesus Christ. We have the answer in the gospel. We have the hope of not just heaven, which is an incredible hope that we have because of Jesus, but we also have a purpose. We have meaning. We have mission because God has called us his own and has called us to make disciples. And so I, I think we are just like beautifully positioned to engage in conversations right. either online or with our neighbors, with our friends, with our family members. And even to use this, I mean, this is kind of interesting. You could use this article as a point of conversation. Hey, I was reading this article where uh, so-and-so was saying that, you know, 50 57% of U.S. adults are beginning to ponder the meaning of life. Are you pondering that at all? I mean, you know, it's an interesting topic, certainly, to start bringing up. How do you do it? How do you I think we do it? Well, I do think that this speaks to uh, the, the the notion. See, I think a lot of us who are Christians who have dr who've grown up on this is how you evangelize or this and that. We have we've somehow have gotten to the point where we're like people who aren't believers don't want to have these conversations mm. like they're going to be insulted. If I bring up Jesus, they're going to be uh, I'm going to lose friendship, whatever else it might be. And, yeah. and what what this article is really telling us. Uh, is putting numbers to what we feel out there. It's like, you know what? Your neighbors, your coworkers, your family, they might be wrestling with this exact question. Like yeah. the door, they might not only be open to a conversation, they might be longing for a conversation. And so then it does take some courage. I'll, I'll grant you that. To Absolutely. Go to these deep places. But I do think there's an opportunity here for us as individuals. First, the question becomes, if you're a Christ follower out there, do you still believe that that's where hope and meaning are found mm. and purpose? Uh, but but okay. as we do believe, yes, it's found in Jesus Christ. Then the question becomes, OK, how can I open myself up to to have these relationships and have these conversations where I can engage with people? And then I think for churches, we we, we can really realize that the opportunity out there might be, <clears throat> excuse me, that that the people in our communities might not be looking for really slick programming. They might not right. be looking for us to be giving them things. Right. Uh, not that there's anything wrong with any of those things. But if we create opportunities for people to truly ask and investigate these questions, yeah, uh, whether it's through a program like Alpha or Christianity Explored or whether mm -hmm. it's just through an opportunity, right? We're opening up our church for a dialogue. I do think there's an opportunity here for us as churches to be creative and just uh, invite people uh, into homes, into our churches yeah. uh, to have these conversations. Aubrey, why don't we close it this way? What would you say to person out there who is a churchgoer and is mm -hmm. a Christ follower, mm -hmm. but has been th so thrown by the pandemic that they're like, I actually am asking these questions again myself. 
Oh, wow. That's probably true of a lot more people than they're willing to admit. That's a, I'm glad you're bringing that up. I think I would say to you, your, your doubts and your fears and your questions, um, of your faith are part of your discipleship journey. So don't be afraid of them. Don't shame yourself for them and don't hide them. Uh, get with your pastor or get with your Christian community, a small group, and just begin to say those things aloud. And then this is something that I always encourage people to pray who are doubting their faith or who are struggling. And I may have said this on the show earlier this week, but just begin to pray, God, if you're real, make yourself mm. real to me. God, you were once real. Make yourself real to me again. Mm. And God is so personal. God is so merciful. God is so generous that he will show up in the most profound ways and your faith will be encouraged. But as you pray, keep your heart open. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you see things. Try not to close yourself off because of cynicism, but open yourself up to the things God is doing all around you. That's really well put. So maybe you're wrestling with this. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to be there for you. You can uh, comment on this at our Facebook uh, and Twitter, Instagram at Common Good Talk. Coming up next, we're excited to spend some time with Scott Sauls. Uh, if you listen to the show at all, you know that we discuss Scott Sauls' writings, his preaching all of the time. And Scott is a good friend of the show, and he is going to join us next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. We're glad to have you with us. Uh, if you've been around The Common Good for any amount of time over the last two years, you know uh, that there's a short list of people that we read and we quote often, whether it be their blogs or their books or their sermons. Uh, and one of those people who we've had uh, a chance to have on the show multiple times is our friend, the senior pastor of Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, that being Scott Sauls. Uh, and one of the things, Aubrey, we're going to talk to Scott about here is cancel culture. I'm so interested to hear what he has to say, because his book is A Gentle Answer, a Secret Weapon in an Age of Us against them. And one of the things he recently talked about at the Gospel Coalition was how that gentleness is kind of the antidote, right? That's right. That's right. And so uh, cancel culture uh, is uh, something that I think is hard for us to wrestle with. Certainly. Because there are times it feels like, and this is what I want to ask Scott about if we can get him on, is uh, there feel like times where people should be canceled. But there is this general stream in our culture right now that just says, uh, anybody that I disagree with, right. I'm going to do away with you. Right. And so it kind of goes back to the, are people evil who don't agree with me? Mm. How do you set the standard? And one thing Scott writes a lot about is this idea that gentleness is the antidote. And, I, and I'm fascinated by that. But, but what do we do? Uh, do is there a time or what's kind of the bar for us as Christians yeah. to go, you know, no, here's where we cancel people. Yeah. You know, I, I actually prefer to use the language deplatform. When do we deplatform someone mm. or when do we deplatform a product? And for me, I think it is uh, when we need to see growth, when we need to see change, when we need to see repentance. There is a time I think God does this in our lives. He pulls us back from ministry or leadership or popularity because mm-hmm. he needs to do something in our hearts and our souls. There's some repentance that needs to happen. So I actually think that is okay. The problem is when we begin left and right canceling a person saying they don't have value or they're evil, they're the villain, um, simply because, you know, they've, they've, they're a sinner. And that's then right. that's where we kind of have to look at our own souls and go, well, all of us are worthy of being canceled. Right. Yeah, yeah. But I do think we have to think, uh, 
we have to critique this well because sometimes we'll just go, I'm I'm not canceling anybody because God didn't cancel me. That's and right. I, I don't think that's actually a really thoughtful response to cancel culture. What do you think about cancel culture and 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 having a gentle answer? I, <laughs> I like the way you speak of deplatforming because I don't think we should ever cancel anybody. Now, there's something to be said about boundaries. Yes. And there's something to be said about I, I I don't need this person in my life. Oh, looks like we might have Scott here. Scott, are you here with us? I am. Yes, it looks like uh, our phones got cut off. There oh, we go. Technology is fun. Wonderful. Hey, Scott, it is so good to have you back on here with us. And uh, we were just talking before you came on uh, about a, a talk that you gave at the Gospel Coalition about cancel culture and the fruit of gentleness that you talked about. Uh, that's what I wanted to, to, to have a discussion with you about here. How would you define cancel culture and why is it so problematic? Well, um, cancel culture uh, in summary is uh, really just a, a description of an environment mm-hmm. where at any given time, uh, if somebody says the wrong thing or, or, or maybe even um, you know, says something and it's just misinterpreted uh, to mean something other than what is intended. They're essentially erased, uh, might lose their job, mm-hmm. um, uh, be major consequences yeah. for right. uh, for goofing up, uh, and it 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 really boils down to um, the question of whether or not saying or doing something politically incorrect mm. in the eyes of, of some uh, is worth destroying somebody. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and now there's a difference between canceling people and, um, and challenging and confronting ideas, mm-hmm. yes. uh, challenge, challenging and confronting hurtful or especially abusive behavior. Yeah. Um, those are in a different category than, than I think what we're talking about when we're talking about cancel culture. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so yeah, uh, everybody's got their triggers and, um, you know, sometimes you trigger a certain person or a certain group, That's right. um, you, you become a target and it, and it happens in both directions. Yeah, it's it not does. just a liberal thing. It's not just a conservative thing. It's pretty much a general tone, uh, yeah. environment. Things. So then, Scott, how does gentleness offer an antidote to cancel culture? Well, I, I, I think just, um, you know, I, I think I caught you on the tail end of, of talking mm-hmm. about how the gospel um, gives us a certain posture or encourages a certain posture just by virtue of the way that, that Christ has has responded to us and to our cancel worthy. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think of how, I think of Paul's treatment of the church at Corinth, you know, Mm -hmm. we talk a lot about, oh, I wish we could get back to having, you know, New Testament churches. Well, the the New Testament church that got the most attention and the most press was the church at Corinth, and they were, they were a complete mess. and, And, um, Paul would have had every justification just to move on and mm-hmm. put put them in the rear view, but instead mm-hmm. he leans in and, and has hope for them. And I I think the moment we stop 
having hope uh, that somebody can change or or that um, you know some kind of reconciliation can occur mm-hmm. you know is the potential to become cynical the potential to become uh, aggressive and mean um, this goes up. Yeah, yeah. That's great. yeah. And uh, Scott, you wrote a great book about gentleness called The Gentle Answer. Uh, and, and so how does somebody out there, if they're like, you know what, I, I don't I need to grow in gentleness. Like I like I, I understand this, but I want to grow in gentleness. How would you help people pastorally understand like these? This is how you grow a gentle spirit. This is how you grow in gentleness. Yeah, I think that it it really boils down to living our lives closely to Jesus and mm-hmm. who he is and, and the way that he responds. I mean, I, you obviously can't give away what you don't have and what you haven't received already. And, and so, um, you know, Christ identifies himself as the one who's gentle and humble in heart. And yeah. he's, a, he's a ref giver. He, he's, you know, the, the true uh, Jesus mm-hmm. will, yeah decrease our anxiety he will he will reduce our fear um uh, of being you know retaliated against if we mess up yeah. uh he's, he's he's forgiving he's a forgiving loving more yeah praise god for that scott um a few days ago brian and i actually talked about your blog post called can christianity become beautiful again in what ways are you seeing christianity not be beautiful at the moment well, I, you know, I, I think that um, it's really more a narrative that's out there mm-hmm. that is driven largely by uh, news media, largely by the blogosphere, largely by um, uh, secular academia, that Christians are the biggest problem in society. Their views are not only dangerous, but evil on, you know, X, Y, Z, fill in, fill in the, the blank for whatever the subject is. Right. Scott, could you paint a picture of what the beauty of Christianity looks like? How, what does it look like when it is beautiful? Well, it, it, it looks like, uh, what, what, what I would argue at all, it's always looked like, mm. uh, uh, on the ground, and, and including in our current day and age, it, it looks like uh, communities of of imperfect people who know uh, and who are so aware of their own imperfection and weakness mm-hmm. that they know that they need uh, a savior outside themselves in Jesus Christ, yeah. and uh, hopefully uh, they're also humble amongst one another. Uh, and not arrogant, and not not rude, and not um, um, you know not oppositional in their posture, but but generous mm. to all, and mm. kind to all, and um, seek to be a, a positive, life giving influence in their their communities, especially their local communities, okay. by getting involved in uh, local affairs, especially among those who who have need. And uh, truth of the matter is, the Christians are doing this all over the world. Right. Yeah. Always have been. Yeah. Um, problem is, and I, I think one of our one of our greatest challenges is that Christ calls us not to boast, not to brag, mm. but he also but he also says, "Let your light shine before men, so that people may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven." And so, I think if there's 
anything we might need to work on, uh, it, it's actually becoming more public with, mm. with the expressions of our faith, uh, and, but, but in, in a way that points not to ourselves, but to, but to Christ who motivates us. That's good. Scott, who are some examples that we can sort of look to right now tangibly that are modeling this beautiful and gentle Christianity? Well, I mean, Eugene Peterson was one mm, of them, but yeah. uh, he, he's uh, no longer with us. Um, but he he was fabulous. I think Ann Voskamp is is a terrific. She's amazing example. Yeah. Uh, Christine Kane is another person. I mean, she's a firecracker. Yeah, she is. She is. <laughs> but but she's a firecracker uh, because she's so passionate about grace and mercy. Yeah, and and. You know, Christ was aggressive with his grace, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, we want to be fierce uh, and bold in the way that we talk about the love of God, and I think Chris does a great job with that. Yeah, she does. Uh, and also works hard uh, around the world to know that um, the love of Christ is available to all kinds of people. But, um, gosh, I mean, uh, Tim Keller, my mm-hmm. mentor, um, you know, in his very smart uh top-level intellect way, um, is, is a very gentle and kind man. He's not prone to make enemies, and, and he's always building bridges. So he's, mm-hmm. a, he's a terrific example as well. Um, you know, I think of John Perkins and mm-hmm. the work that he does around, uh, you know, racial reconciliation and justice. Yep. And, and um, I mean, I could go on. That's right. There, the list is very long. Johnny Erickson Tata, what a glorious person she is. Amazing. I mean, these are kind of the more well-known people, but but honestly, there there are millions of people who don't have those public profiles right. who are um, just doing great, loving work on the local level. That's great. Scott, one of the things that I do appreciate about you is uh, I try to encourage people. Uh, I, I try not to encourage people to get on Twitter too much, but I try to encourage people towards certain directions on Twitter. And you're one of them. I also you mentioned Tim Keller. I love what he's doing on Twitter these days. Uh, but you pinned a tweet that I would just love to have you react to or explain that you wrote the other day that I, when I read it to my co-host, Aubrey here, she said it made her tear up. So <laughs> I would love to just read it and let you pastorally, because I, I think this is going to really hit people. You wrote. Uh, the places where you like yourself the least are also the places where Jesus is determined to love you the most. I think that is an unbelievable just tweet and just theological thought. Could you just unpack that, especially for people who just need to hear that right now? Well, I mean, that's one of the major themes of the book you referred to, A Gentle mm-hmm. Answer, which is my latest project. And, and you know, I, I just I think that um, we have it all backwards, even even if we've you know, been Christians for a long time, we, we have it backwards into thinking that, that perhaps, or at least feeling or operating as if God puts up with us. Um, mm. that, he loves, that He loves us, kind of like parents love their problem child, but He doesn't, <laughs> really, enjoy, but he doesn't really enjoy us. Right. And, right. Um, and, and that's just not true. Uh, you know, Zephaniah 3, you know, affirms how much he delights in his in his children, but uh, it, as well as the whole book of Galatians. But I, I, the, the other part is that when you look at God in the Old Testament as well as 
Christ in the new, it seems like every time he encounters somebody who is, is, you know, doing a battle with guilt or shame, he goes straight for the source of the guilt and the shame mm. and meets it with grace and mercy and forgiveness and love. So and, um, Isaiah with his unclean lips in Isaiah 6, you know, you know the, God sends an angel and targets his lips and says your guilt is removed and your sin is atoned for. And Zacchaeus, the tax collector who's isolated himself, um, you know, just by the way he's treated other people. Uh, you know, Jesus says, I'm coming to your house today. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been years since Zacchaeus had had anybody in his house. And, and all of a sudden, the Son of God wants to befriend him and, and change him and give him community. Um, you look at the, um, you know, Samaritan woman at the well who, you know, who is spiritually thirsty because of, of the way she's, you know, been, you know, experienced disappointment after disappointment mm-hmm, with men, mm-hmm. got this insatiable thirst, and Christ says, uh, have some water. If you drink it, you'll never thirst again. And, yeah. you know, it's, it's just always caring for and tending to people yeah. at their place of greatest hurt, mm-hmm. greatest guilt, greatest shame, greatest need. And that's just who he is. It's what he's like. And he doesn't change. Yeah. But he's still that way. He's still that way. Yeah. So beautiful. Scott, so you're primarily a pastor, but also you're one with a pretty public following, and I'm sure you get a lot of feedback from people, positive and negative. I was just curious, how do you kind of keep going? How do you deal with the highs and lows of the feedback? Um, I don't really get attacked very much. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, you know, sometimes you'll get a little trolling here and there on social media, but... Um, Generally, if it's a stranger that just kind of comes in and says something mean or insulting, I just uh, I just don't address it. I, I don't respond. <laughs> nice. And and you know, because if you engage that kind of stuff, all of a sudden you're gonna you're gonna waste an entire day. That's yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> You know. Um, yes. On this person who may not even be the person they're claiming to be. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> right. You know, it could be. Somebody entirely, you know, and a lot of times it's an anonymous person, and and so, uh, you know, I guess adopted the discipline of of not engaging there, and, and um, yeah, but it's not, it's not. I hope I'm not a super controversial person. It has to become a huge. That's right. That's right. Scott, we're so grateful for you, man. And the number of times you've come on, I want to end this way. Uh, there's a lot of people out there, pandemic, uh, you know, politics, all sorts of reasons that people just feel like they're lacking hope right now, that they don't know uh, what to kind of hold on to. To our listeners out there who are just kind of feeling a little bit hopeless, I just want to give you a minute or two just to kind of uh, kind of preach to them a little bit as to where it is they can find hope, why they can have hope in this time. Well, what what has always been true is still true that that Jesus Christ is on His throne. Yeah, He rule He rules the world, and and even when things seem like they're going um, out of control, He He never ceases to be in control of all things, and. Uh, Here's what I would say, especially on the tail end of a pandemic. 
if you're a Christian, you know, if you're if you're if you're not a follower of Christ, I, I would urge you to investigate the person mm-hmm. and work of Christ because I, I really don't have any solid, anchored, honest hope to offer you uh, if if you're living your life without Christ. Yeah. Uh, but if you are living your life with Christ, uh, who has risen from the dead, and we have all kinds of historical data and evidence and eyewitness accounts to solidify uh, an insecure belief in that claim that he rose from the dead, including the founders of every Ivy League university except for one, including you know Oxford historians like C.S. Lewis, mm-hmm. Harvard, Harvard Law School founder Simon Greenleaf uh, is another. He tried to disprove the resurrection with his legal skills and became a Christian in the process. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, because he discovered it would be true. And, you know, so this, if, what is, if, 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 if the resurrection is true if, uh, that, that occurred in the past, then, then the promises that came to us out of the resurrection are that Christ is going to come again. Mm-hmm. It's going to make all things new. Mm-hmm. And it's going to create an entirely renewed world will there be no more death mourning crying or pain and so so what we what we say to our people every now and then at our church here in nashville is uh if 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 you're a follower of christ that means your long-term worst case scenario is resurrection and everlasting (laughs) right uh it it can't get any it can't get any better than that and it can't get any worse than that a hundred years from now a thousand years from now a billion years from now a zillion years from now um, it's just going to get better and better and better mm. after Christ returns. And, and so in the grand scheme of eternity, the life that we're living, some of us have more burdens than others, um, but the Bible seems to give evidence to there that the more burden a Christian experiences in this life, the more joy they're going to have in the next one, mm. uh, by, by the contrast. And, and, and so um, just say, you know, the... the, the the Bible was written to us by, you know, given to us by sufferers. There's not a single person who wrote a book of the Bible that wasn't suffering deeply as they wrote. They were in prison. They were slaves. They were in exile. They were awaiting execution. That's right. Um, you know, you, you, you don't have anybody who wrote the Bible who was cruising. Yeah, um, right, right. Even, even Ecclesiastes, a very wealthy, you know, man was, was struggling in his wealth deeply. And, and, with the meaning of life. And so I think we can take heart in that, that the people who gave us the scriptures uh, gave it to us from, from hard places. That's such a good word. That uh, is Scott Saul, senior pastor of Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, author of many books, most recently, A Gentle Answer, Our Secret Weapon in an Age of Us Against Them. Go to Scott's website. You can read his blog at scottsauls.com. That's S-A-U-L-S, scottsauls.com. You can also follow him on Twitter at Scott Saul. Scott, we are really grateful for you. Thanks for spending the time with us today. Thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. Good being with you all. Absolutely. You're all listening to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. This episode is a rebroadcast of The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. Happy to have you with us today on a Friday afternoon. All right, so something I'm going to lay cards on the table or something I increasingly struggle with in my life is anxiety. Mm. I never like I'm not medicated for it yeah. or any of this, but just 
you know, I think you get older and you got more responsibility. And and I struggle. I used to be a pretty carefree person. And yeah. now every now and then I'll like tell my wife, like, I'm having trouble sleeping or like, oh, I've wow. got like yeah. this. I just feel like the weight of the world's on my mm. shoulder. And I think a lot of people out there feel that way. Yep. And then you read, uh, so let's do a little bit of Bible work. You read Paul's words to the church in Philippi. You read Philippians 4, uh, where you know where Paul says, don't be anxious about anything. And when every time I read that, I'm like, well, that's not very helpful. But, <laughs> but, Thanks, Paul. I know. But then he gives the reason. He said, but he gives the action. He says, but in everything by prayer and petition, present your request to God. And then the promise. The peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So it's okay. not just a don't be anxious, yeah. even though that's how it starts. Uh, and so I thought if I struggle with this, there's got to be a lot of people out there who struggle with anxiety. They say that anxiety is the growing, like the largest, fastest growing mental illness out there right now. Is and right? I'm using the term mental illness. Health crisis is maybe a better word that it is across the globe. Anxiety is just spiking incredibly and for young people as well. Interesting. I mean, yeah. in the midst of a pandemic, it makes, it, sense. It makes some sense. Mm-hmm. But also, you and I have kids in the teenage years mm-hmm. or entering the, the pressures on them are different than what we face. Oh, they're so heavy so on them. So yeah. different. And you you were like, well, don't, you know, you got to, as a parent, try to, well, you can't. It's it's the culture we live in. Yeah. It's kind of like yeah. the the stew that, that they're a part of. And so I guess you and I are both pastors. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think as people who can struggle with anxiety, but also as people who are counseling people who mm-hmm. struggle with anxiety or who want to shepherd their church to not be anxious. Yeah. How do we do this? We have an article here from Ann Voskamp where she actually asks a way to battle anxiety. How do we, how do you, how would you answer that question of battling anxiety? How do we do that? I feel a little bit out of my depth because I have, I mean, I'll just be honest with you. Anxiety has not been a struggle for me, mm. except I was telling you this, that recently I have, I, I do think it's starting to creep in because at night I have had those nights where I'm up, um, I can't sleep because I'm worrying or mm-hmm. because I just have something going on over and over and over in my head. And and so I do think that's some version of anxiety. Um, I would say, you know, what we need to be mindful of is there's there's worry Mm-hmm. where perhaps we're worried about something and we can solve it. And then there's anxiety, which really is more of that visceral reaction where like we can't sleep or our mind is racing or our heart are beating. Or sometimes in extreme cases, you can feel like you're having a panic attack. And I think uh, pastorally, I think I would just say you're not alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, more and more and more people are starting to open up about the fact that they struggle with this. I'm sure there's uh, research on why it seems to be increasing. Mm-hmm. Um, But then I do think the fact that, I mean, goodness gracious, God's word is so timeless that it even talks about worry and anxiety. And I do love Paul's words. Pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. That's what Ann Voskamp says on her blog post, A Way to Battle Anxiety. Um, She says that everything must be absorbed into thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. The way to battle anxiety is to exalt God. And um, I, I feel like that at least has to be part of it, right. right? Now, in some cases, you may need a Christian therapist, you may need a biblical counselor, you may need a friend you can talk to. Um, but in other cases, I do think to sort of try to stop your mind as best you can and just go, okay, Lord, these are the things I'm thankful for. I exalt you that you're in control. I am not God, you are. And just That's sort right. of, I think, get in that, almost fake it till you make it spiritual mm. discipline. What, but what do you think, Brian? Because if this is a struggle for you, you know more than I do. 
I'm not sure I do. I, I think that's it's problem. <laughs> it, I love Ann Voskamp here says the answer to much anxiousness is the adoration of Christ. Mm. It's this remembering. I think one of the answers for me when I am feeling you know, anxious or or whatever. When I usually is a sign that there's just stuff building up yeah. that I don't feel like I'm meeting. Whether it be a pastor, radio, dad, husband, like you've got all these balls that you're juggling. Right. And you're like I just don't feel like I feel like these balls are going to drop, or I'm not yeah. doing enough. Yeah. For me, that's usually a sign, and it kind of sounds paradoxical. It sounds backwards. That's actually a time when I need to unplug. Yeah, and no, like, no, that makes sense. Go for a walk with my wife or mm-hmm. go on a date with my wife or mm-hmm. go throw a ball with my son mm-hmm. or go whatever else it might be. You would think the answer is, okay, then you just got to work harder and get everything done. So, it's <laughs> so you can your check plate. it off your list. For me, it's those are those are just billboards. They're just flashing lights yeah. to like unplug, go do something fun and life giving. I'll go on walks and just find myself praying like like those are that has become increasingly the answer yeah. for me because when I continually just keep doing mm-hmm. oh, I got to get this done got to keep going and there are times you have to work hard obviously but you know I got to do 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 yeah. I am I that I am going to fall off that cliff at some point I'm I know start yesterday we it. talked about Sabbath was that yesterday yeah. and I feel like there has to be some connection here because um, what you're saying are Sabbath things right stop and go for a walk stop and go on a date stop and play outside with your son mm-hmm. like be in nature worship God pray I wonder how that would help um disempower our anxiety if we mm-hmm. were to be more intentional about sabbathing. Yeah, and I also think anxiety and depression, all, a lot of mental illness issues are just things we still aren't good at talking about so in the true. church. Like That's we're so still uh you know until you get to Philippians 4 or this and that, but this whole anxiety anxiety is more than nervousness, right? Yes. Like oh, I'm anxious to speak today or this that's normal. Yeah, that's that. healthy, right? It's more like I'm not enough, or mm. this kind of feel of uh, I need other people to affirm me, or all this kind of stuff. And so, with the last minute we have left, do you think we're getting better at that as churches and the evangelical world as a whole, or do we still have a long way to go in in kind of normalizing and talking about these things? Um, I would say both, and mm-hmm. I definitely think we're getting better. I would say we weren't talking about these things 20 years ago, and now we are being more open. At pastors are talking about their struggles. Um, people in the church are opening up. We're kind of normalizing it. Mm-hmm. We definitely have a long way to go. I mean, I just even think about like other mental health issues in the church that we haven't even tapped, we haven't even touched. Yes, and we certainly have a long way to go for the mental health community. Absolutely. But I mean, 20 years ago, could you have written a book on lament? I'm not sure. <laughs> Absolutely not. And so that's why I mean, I, both yeah. and I do think we're, we're getting better. Yeah. We wanted to go over this topic just to say, if you're out there and you struggle with anxiety, you're not alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we do want to read like, that's a promise in Philippians four. It's not like a, Oh man, Paul doesn't know what he's talking about. That's a promise made to us. And so we want to encourage you with that. We'll put that article from Ann Voskamp up at our Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We'll put them up at common Good talk. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. This episode is a rebroadcast of The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Coming up this hour, will we ever go back to hugs after COVID-19? You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. Really good to have you with us today. 
Okay, so I want to get your thoughts here on COVID and what is going to happen when we come out of COVID, regardless of, you know, there's things going on now, but we all feel like we're coming out of it, right? Like the vaccines, the Moderna, the Pfizer, they keep rolling out Mm -hmm. and more and more people are getting vaccinated, more and more people. It just feels like life is kind of returning slowly back to normal. Praise the Uh, Lord. No matter how much some of our, uh, I'm going to sound like that guy, but I was going to say no matter how much some of our media wants us to believe it's not, because man, I watched the Today Show this morning, you would think it was last April. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, really? Oh my gosh. That's so devastating to me. I wish that they would change their tune and just at least let's start celebrating the good things that are happening. I I understand there are places where the number Numbers are still skyrocketing. I mean, you know, you don't want to be naive, but you also, it's not last April. Last April was devastating. Yep. And it, yep. it's a new day. So let's at least like pretend like it is. <laughs> yeah. Let's at least celebrate the good things happening and, yeah. and know that we have better ways to deal with it now. And anyway, it's, it's just a different time. And so people are given a lot of thought to what is life going to look like as we come out of this. Mm-hmm. And with that in mind, at NBC News, I read this just I'm just going to read for you the headline. OK, it says social distancing during covid means no hugs. My personal space finally feels respected. <laughs> the pandemic has unshackled me from the casual touches <laughs> That define interpersonal communication for most people. You go on and read this. And this author is like, not only do I not want to, but I don't think anyone in culture should want to go back to hugs, handshakes, Mm -hmm. any of kind of the obligatory stuff that we were that we've been doing for all of time. But leading up until covid (laughs) and I read this this is your love language, right? So you're like, no. I'm not, you're not joking. I read this. I was like, there's people who actually feel this way. Like, I'm like, I'm going to handshake and high five everybody. I'm going to be the hugging guy. I don't know. Do, do you feel like this is, this is what some people are feeling? Like, hey, I'm good with the space we've kind of set now. Let's just kind of keep this from now till kingdom come. Well, so I have a very good friend who, bef- I mean, one of my closest friends. And before COVID, she was already like, that. you know, the moment in church when you turn and shake hands, she was like, nope, sometimes she would come to church late on purpose to skip mm-hmm. that hand sanitizer with her everywhere she went. And uh, the hugging thing, like definitely was not interested in that. And partly because she'll say I'm a germaphobe and she's kind of saying it tongue in cheek, but she's like, I don't know where you've been. I don't know where your hands have been. And the truth, I think handshaking, come on, like, yep. we got to get back to handshaking. I, I'm a hugger, which is probably not okay. Cause I need to like, you need to ask for consent. Really, not everyone wants a hug. So I think that's totally fair. But there's a part of me that feels like we are soldiers. We have been in war for the past <laughs> yeah. year. And we need to get out of the, you know, the foxhole and celebrate, hug and high five. And just like we made it through this crazy, crazy thing. And so let's like, I want that like New York City parade where the soldier and the gal are kissing and the ticker tapes going everywhere. Like, that's what I want. Okay. What do you think? That's so funny. You got to be honest. When I, when I read uh, someday here, we'll talk to Dallas Jenkins again about how he put the chosen together. When Mm -hmm. I picture what times were like with Jesus, every time Jesus is telling a story in my mind, he has his arm around the disciples. (laughs) Oh, that's nice. Come here, Peter. Come here, Peter. (laughs) Get over here. Little little knucklehead. Like he's just always (laughs) constantly like poking them and got his hand around them. Giving them noogies. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I 
I've shared this with you. It's at the top of the list of what I miss most about church is just the hugs and the handshakes yeah. and the and the say goodbye to people. But this author here, it is something worth thinking about. She says, while I long for the day that the pandemic will disappear like a thief into the night, I fervently hope that this deeper respect for physical boundary stays with us. Wow. I got to be honest. I don't ever. And you kind of touched on it because you were like, maybe I should start asking if people want to hug. I never think in those terms. And yes. you can be like, people could be like, that's going to get you in trouble. It is. I mean, I will say, Brian, especially, I mean, this may be a double standard, but you're a man and you're a pastor. Like, you got to ask about the hugs. How do you, okay, walk me through that non-COVID time, <laughs> non-COVID time, persons, yes. re, you see them regularly at church. I'm not talking yeah. about this visitor who just walked in. Okay, not a rando. I don't want to make it seem like I'm just walking around our lobby like, hug me. <laughs> that is not the case at all. Like, I, I've got I've got some social, uh, some social, like, yeah. norm. I know how this okay, works. Okay, okay, okay. How does, walk me through, I don't want to get myself in trouble here and ask <laughs> a dumb question. So walk me through this. Like, how do you ask for consent? Yeah, yeah. Well, it is awkward. I mean, I'm not going to lie. I just, all I think about is this one guy from our church years ago in a different state. None of our listeners would know who he was. But all the, (laughs) (laughs) you got me. But all the ladies knew him as the hugging guy. Sorry, Uh, that's I'm not that guy. And they would like run in the different direction because he would do these lingering hugs. And it was, but I hear you not doing that. You're doing a friendly pastor hug with people you know. I think, I think, the women are just avoiding you probably if they don't want it. <laughs> I think it's more the guys because I tend to like man hug the guys too. You know, like we handshake and come around and yeah. I think guys are like, what is I, that? I'm a hugger though too, Brian. So I gotta, I, I guess, I guess we have to just ask people like, are you a hugger or not? It's okay if you're not. Can and we then, get like name tags? Like, yes, like, t-shirt, I like, like it. Wristbands. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Ma- your mask. If you're still wearing masks, it could say like, I'm good with hugging. If you're still wearing masks. So anyway, <laughs> it is going to be interesting as we pull out of the pandemic, what is normal or what has changed since before the pandemic? I found that article very interesting. Coming up next, Andrew Walker author of a new book called Liberty for All, Defending Everyone's Religious Freedom in a Pluralistic Age. Andrew's going to join us next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Everybody, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us. Uh, and we are thrilled to be joined uh, by the author of a new book called Liberty for All. It actually hasn't come out yet, coming out later on in May, called Liberty for All, Defending Everyone's Religious Freedom in a Pluralistic Age. Uh, his name is Andrew Walker. Andrew, thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, guys, it's great to be with you. And thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Our pleasure. Hey, Andrew, before we dive into this book that looks super timely and really interesting. Mm -hmm. But before we dive into the book, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience so they can get to know you a little bit? Sure. So um, as I said, my name is Andrew Walker, and I'm a professor of Christian ethics uh, at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary here in Louisville, Kentucky. And like the title suggests, I teach ethics and some apologetics related issues. And then I also run an on-campus think tank called the Carl F.H. Henry Center for Evangelical Engagement. Wow! And so um, my kind of career and calling is ethics and public theology hmm. and contending for the issues in the public square that we think are true, not only because we're Christians, but because we think that 
what is true for Christians is true for everyone. Mm -hmm. And um, the common good and human flourishing are at stake. And we've got to show up and um, serve our neighbor by speaking truthfully. Mm. Oh, that sounds fantastic. I love that you threw out the common good in there, too. Thank you <laughs> right, for that, right. Andrew. <laughs> Andrew, the title of your new book coming out on May 4th is Liberty for All, Defending Everyone's Religious Freedom in a Pluralistic Age. Love that title. Love that topic. Why did you decide to write it? Sure. So, you know, to, to be totally forthcoming, this is an adaptation of my dissertation, oh. um, which mean which meaning that it's it's not... It's an adaptation, so it's not as boring. As <laughs> it's not the boring. This is the user-friendly so, version. <laughs> this is a user-friendly edition. That's exactly right. Uh, and so, the, you know, the, the biggest onus for writing this is religious liberty is an embattled concept in American culture. Mm-hmm. And more often than not, in fact, I would say almost 100% of the time when the idea of religious liberty comes up, um, it's it's politicized. Mm-hmm. And yeah. oftentimes it's it's thought of as more or less... Uh, a, a political idea that was born of history's hmm. um, understanding of, of how the bad ways that religion and politics have interacted. Hmm. So then we get this idea called the First Amendment. But all that to say, most people think that religious liberty is purely a constitutional idea hmm. or it's a legal idea. And so the whole purpose of this book is to set forth kind of an evangelical argument to demonstrate that religious liberty is not simply a contingency of history that it, a philosophy a philosophy of religious liberty is actually tied to central core tenets of our beliefs mm. as Christians. Mm. Um, and I'll just briefly state, you know, uh, you take the issues of eschatology, you take the issues of anthropology, you take the issues of missiology. Um, and I know those are big, fancy words that we often say here in seminary. But all that to say, all three of those categories are implicated Right. When we talk about religious liberty wow. and no one has ever really um, strived to make those connections apparent and and demonstrate what they are. And so that's what I tried to do is to say yeah. that this is not simply an accident. Um, we as Christians ought to be principally committed to religious liberty, not simply out of an interest of serving our interest as Christians, but actually because it's true of the age that we live in yeah. where um, people come to different conclusions about ideology and religion. Mm-hmm. And I actually think God has given us the tools to figure out how to live peaceably with one another, mm-hmm. despite this, despite deep disagreement. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's really great. Andrew, I, I want to go way more foundational, way down to the core. How would you, as someone who's thought so much about this, like the term religious liberty, the term religious freedom get thrown around a lot, like you said, right. in politics and the news. How would you just boil it down and define for somebody lit religious liberty or religious freedom? Yeah, it's it's hard to to make an academic boil something down. To <laughs> so I'll, I'll do my best. Uh, so to me, religious liberty is a simple truth that says individuals are are striving to make meaning of their lives mm. in authentic ways hmm. um, and people come to grasp truths uh, voluntarily in order to make meaning of their lives and then people desire to live those truths out uh, in every aspect of their lives now notice that definition um, it could apply to both religious and non-religious persons right mm-hmm. um, because every single person religious or not, is, is attempting to um, align themselves with what they believe ultimate truth is, um, to live authentically in relationship to it, uh, and then to live that out in all aspects of their lives. 
and Christians and non-Christians all do that. Right. Uh, and so religious liberty is, is merely the idea. It, it reflects the truth of human nature that we are trying to live authentic lives. Now, that, that's not to say that we agree or treat as relative all people's understanding of truth certainly, and religion. Certainly. Not at all. But, but if, we, if we understand that people are trying to make meaning of their lives, and some people are going to believe wrongly, mm-hmm. uh, we then have to ask the question, okay, if people believe wrongly about religion or some aspects of morality, uh, at what point does the government have a responsibility to step in and restrict someone's religious liberty? Now, right. now I will say religious liberty is not an absolute right in all instances. You can't mm-hmm. do everything you want under the rubric of religion right. or morality. But the beauty of religious liberty is that it, it, it makes it the burden of the government to prove why it should restrict your religious liberty rather than you trying to appeal mm. to the government for your own re- religious liberty. Mm. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a big question of, of who has the default authority right, right. In, in life. Is it the government or is it someone possessing a conscience, using their reason, yeah. uh, trying to live a free life? Yeah, this is so interesting, Andrew. Um, I'm, I, you know, I'm thinking about the the listener who may have heard a, an evangelical leader, or a different church leader, Christian leader, say that perhaps defend, allowing other people to defend their religious beliefs that aren't Christians is maybe somehow defending idolatry or or right, defending sin. Right. What would you say to that listener? Well, I would say that's that's mistaken um, on a couple levels. I would say, first off, religious liberty is never uh, about defending someone's right to sin hmm. um, or defending false belief um, because, and this is, it's in the book, it's a, it's a complicated argument we don't have time for today, but people have political rights to be wrong. Um, they don't have ultimate rights to be wrong before God. Hmm. Um, and so God which is why I, I say in the book, religious liberty is not an ultimate right. At some point in, in the future, there will not be a, re- a right to religious liberty because <laughs> God is going to judge. Right, right. Um, he's going to he's going to bring judgment. Um, so religious liberty is speaking to a political legal reality, not an ultimate metaphysical theological reality. So I think there's that aspect. I think it's also mistaken um, when we understand what religious liberty is. Um, as far as kind of the mechanics of religious liberty itself, religious liberty is not defending the merits of everyone's convictions or their re- or their religion. What religious liberty is concerned about doing is defending the faculty of the conscience or defending the faculty of the mind and how the mind comes to understand certain truths and then to live in response to hmm. certain truths. Hmm. So again, I, I know we're splitting hairs here, but it's a really important yeah. uh, thing to separate. Yeah. We're not defending the merits. We're defending the rights of conscience. That's good. And the conscience and how it understands what truth is. That's good. That's really good. Again, the new book is called Liberty for All, Defending Everyone's Religious Freedom in a Pluralistic Age. And Andrew, thanks so much for staying with us. I guess uh, what I want to ask is we feel I feel like we read stories all the time that religious liberty, religious freedom is under attack, like we're losing Hmm. it in our culture. Do you agree with that? And if so, what do you see going on out there culturally right now? Yeah, I think no doubt religious liberty um, is is very very endangered at the cultural level, and I can come back to that. But at the same time, 
um, very interestingly at the at the legal level um, mm-hmm. when you look at various court rulings and especially um, the, the current Supreme Court makeup. Um, there, there have been a lot of really strong constitutional rulings pertaining to religious liberty. Um, but I would say that that's not enough because uh, if religious liberty is endangered in the culture, that means there's a cultural shift taking place. And over time and over decades, uh, if that cultural shift continues, those who have a growing lack of familiarity with religious liberty will then, will then someday be the ones occupying the Supreme Court themselves. Hmm. So religious liberty is only as secure as is the culture behind it. Interesting. And when you look at the culture, um, you know, a, a, a poll came out um, a couple weeks ago saying that church attendance and um, mosque attendance and synagogue attendance is actually at the lowest level it's ever been yeah. at, since it's been recorded. Um, and so that actually has a lot of impact on religious liberty because it means uh, on the one hand, still about half of Americans identify as somewhat religious Half of Americans don't, and that means there's growing there's a growing secularity alongside perhaps a growing religiosity, and what that means uh, culture is is apt for is just continued conflict over the place of religion um, and and non-religious viewpoints in society, and so you can look. Um, I mean, World Magazine. Uh, every single week puts out kind of a a new email of all the areas where religious liberty has been implicated. And I I study this for a living and I can't even keep up with all of the issues happening in society. I mean, this summer, the Supreme Court is going to rule on a monumentally significant case pertaining to whether Catholic adoption agencies can continue to live according to their 2000 year old convictions in the Hmm. the city of Philadelphia. Hmm. Um, So that's just one example. Uh, We have you know, many of us are familiar with the cake baker case in right. Colorado with right. Jack Phillips. Well, Jack Phillips is under litigation again uh, because someone wanted him to make a uh, gender identity transition cake and he wouldn't make it, hmm. um, which it's interesting to me. I should just add as a side note, um, we're often told that, you know, it's conservative Christians that are all about the culture war. Yeah. But oftentimes what I'm noticing, it's actually often more progressives that's that are the culture war aggressive. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, a lot of times Christians just want to be left alone and to, to live in accordance with how their institutions have been um, conducted for the last 2000 years. Right. Uh, but it's at odds with a, a new growing orthodoxy around often sexuality and gender. Yeah. And unfortunately, there's really not any encouraging... Uh, way to resolve that at the cultural level. In fact, it seems to be only getting worse, yeah. which which is why, sadly, we have to defer to the Supreme Court to make these decisions mm. rather than rather than work them out legislatively through Congress or through local state legislatures. Andrew, I, I want to um, take it down to sort of the the person listening who wants to do something, maybe just got fired up about what you said and is like, hey, I, I, I want to call my representatives or I want to lead a small group on this. Or uh, what would you advise just sort of the everyday churchgoer, not in academia, but is maybe passionate about this? Uh, what would you advise them to do? I would say to, um, you know, check out a few books on this subject uh, by by. There are accessible volumes, not just on religious liberty, but essentially the Christian's place in in politics. I think they should try to plug in with organizations like the Beckett Fund, uh, like Alliance Defending Freedom. Um, You know, if you do something as simply as 
uh, sign up for their newsletters or observe them on social media, um, that's a really important thing to at least stay informed. Um, and the encouraging thing is, if people do want to stay informed, we have top tier organizations like ADF and Beckett that are dying for advocates and warriors to come to their defense. Hmm. Uh, you know, if if religious liberty is not retrieved in each generation, uh, essentially the the flower gets cut off from the root hmm. and you have a, a growing lack of familiarity with your own nation's traditions. Right. And, you know, religious liberty is a uh, concept as old as the Constitution itself. Um, it's not really the Christian conservatives that have moved on the religious liberty issue. It's the broader culture wow. and broader legal movements that have abandoned what used to be a bipartisan consensus. Yeah. Uh, Andrew, I'd love to end this way. Um, you've basically answered this question, but I'd love to just have you do it one more time. Uh, there's a you hear this a lot in the church, like, "Hey, we, the church shouldn't be political. We should mm, just yeah. preach the gospel mm. and yep. not worry about politics." As somebody like yourself who is all about engagement and and just in the middle of it, how would you answer that critique from you know the people that may believe that in our churches? Yeah, no, I I absolutely love that question. Um, so here's here's how I would answer that is. If your religion teaches that there are objective moral truths or objective moral obligations, um, then your religion is necessarily going to become to some degree cultural and political. Hmm. Um, so there's there's a a way in which um, if we if we devalue the ethical norms of Christianity, that we're actually um, rejecting a responsibility that we have to share these truths and norms with the world. Um, so you take you take an uh, an issue like marriage. Christians believe that um, marriage is the union of one man and one woman. Mm -hmm. We believe that obviously because Scripture teaches that in Genesis chapter one and two. Right. But we also understand that Genesis chapter one and two is teaching a universal creational truth that all persons. Uh, whether you're um, Muslim, atheist, whatever, if if you are a, a male or a female, you meet the criteria to get married. Mm. Uh, proper marriage criteria is not based on proper theological belief. It's right. based on whether or not you're male or female. Right. And, and why do we know that matters? Well, because we know that society understands marriage and family to be at the very cornerstone of its foundations. And where family and marriage collapse, um, you have human wreckage and, and human despair follow. Yeah. And so, you know, all of a sudden I, I just brought this marriage issue up and that's a really contentious issue in our society. Um, the, the biggest question we have to ask though is not, is it contentious? It is. The biggest question is, is it true? Mm. And does it lead to human flourishing? Hmm. And if it is, then necessarily we ought to be willing to proclaim that and not be embarrassed about yeah, it. I mean, that's, that's one good. of the things that I'm constantly telling my students is, if we believe the scriptures, uh, it means the scriptures are speaking true things. True things are always good things. And you have an obligation to be um, prophetic and courageous mm. in, in telling the truth about these things, not to be embarrassed about it. Now, obviously, it could be met with conflict. Certainly. Uh, but guess what? Conflict is a normal part of this life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know <laughs> They're the truth. 
There you go. That's you a, go. that's a great word to end on. Again, Andrew Walker is the associate professor of Christian ethics at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, executive director for the Carl F.H. Henry Institute for Evangelical Engagement, and the author of a new book coming out on May the 4th, Liberty for All, Defending Everyone's Religious Freedom in a Pluralistic Age. You can learn much more about Andrew at his website, andrewtwalker.com. That's andrewtwalker.com. Andrew, this was wonderful, man. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Absolutely. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. This episode is a rebroadcast of The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, and we are thrilled to be joined on the phone uh, by the co-founders of Just As I Am Ministries and the hosts of a show called Freedom to Choose, which is heard every Sunday morning at 9 a.m. right here on AM 1160. That is Rich and Susan Collenberg. Rich and Susan, really glad to have you on the show. Thanks so much for joining us today. It's great to be here, Brian. Thanks for having us. Yes, thanks for having us. Absolutely. Our pleasure. Uh, I, I would love to uh, just begin with your guys' stories because your stories are powerful. So, Rich, I know it's hard to encapsulate a story in a short amount of time, but Rich, why don't you go first and let our listeners know a little bit of your story? OK, well, the Reader's Digest uh, condensed version is <laughs> yeah. like, uh, you know, I graduated high school with honors and I went sideways immediately after that. Hmm. Um and I kind of woke up at age 41, a drug addict and um, an alcoholic, and mm. I was sleeping in a one-room shack uh, with the chemicals to cook methamphetamine buried underneath my sleeping bag, and that wasn't in my graduation speech. <laughs> wow. Through, uh, through a series of seemingly small, insignificant choices— I got out so far where if you'd asked me mm. when I graduated, was that where, where my plans were, you know, at age 41? And it wasn't uh, by any stretch, but it happened. And yeah. addiction is cunning. And um, it has you convinced that you don't have a problem until you're so sick that uh, there's no no other alternative than to understand that you do have a problem. And I think that's where I finally got to, yeah. you know, 24, 25 years later. Oh, praise God. That's that's a powerful story. Susan, I know you have much the same story. Could you share a little bit of your story with our listeners as well? Sure. I have a similar story, except um, I started a little bit earlier than Rich um, because mm-hmm. of some uh, real bad childhood trauma. I was sexually molested over several years when I was young. Um, I found that one way that I could when I was 10 years old was to start smoking and drinking. And that kind of started my path down um, 25 years of drug abuse. Um, By the time I was in high school, I was using cocaine and Mm. um, it just kept, you know, I was always searching for more. I, there was this deep, dark hole inside of me and I, and I just tried anything that I could to fill it. It seemed to work for a little bit, but then I needed something stronger um, I was arrested several times and went to jail for um, mm. selling 
narcotics and being under the influence. And I was in and out of jails. I did a geographical. I, I moved to Hawaii, and the first person I met was a drug addict and, hmm. and ended up a mess there. So I came back to, to California, and um, I met somebody that um, our main goal in life was getting and using drugs, and we became good friends and partners. And um, the last time that I was arrested, I went to jail and I told this man that um, it was over. I couldn't see him anymore. And he said, don't worry, Susan, you won't know um, that I'm using. And I said, yes, I would. And I was I was finally released out of jail. And um, when I was in jail the last time, um, I was probably about 25 pounds lighter than what I am today. And, and I'm pretty light to begin with. And wow. my hair was falling out. My teeth were falling out. And um Somebody prayed with me, and I don't even remember what the prayer was. All I knew is that um, I never had the obsession to use drugs after that. So when I got out of jail, I told the guy, um, he came to my house, and I said, you know what, if you don't leave, I'm going to call the police, because finally, for one time in my life, I wanted to live, and I knew that God had saved me from where I had been, and I no longer wanted to die. And so I told Mm. the guy, you got to leave. So I left. Yeah. <laughs> so he was that guy. I was that guy. Wow. Oh, yeah. I didn't see that coming. <laughs> so I went home and took inventory and that's uh I realized at that point that everything I'd done in my life up to that point was wrongly wow. motivated and wrong. And somehow God I remember laying face down on on the bed screaming at the top of my lungs for God to help me and I didn't care who heard me. I was screaming as loud as I could and something happened. And um, the obsession to use was lifted. And so we had like 10 years where we used together. And um, after I had gotten out of jail and he had gotten clean and sober, we kind of got back together. And, um, you know, we realized that living together was not God's plan for us. And um, we decided to get married. And we got Mm -hmm. married six months after that. And we made one promise to each other. We had one goal in life. And that goal was to search for God as hard as we searched for drugs. And here we are today. (laughs) Oh, praise God. What a powerful story that is. Thank you so much for telling it. Uh, That really is powerful. Rich, let me ask you, uh, like we said, you guys host a show called Freedom to Choose. It's heard uh, right here Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. on AM 1160. Why don't you describe for us your radio program? What can listeners expect when they tune into Freedom to Choose? Um, You know, we range um, up and down the, the spectrum, if you will, of principle-based living, um, and, you know, the difference between intelligence and nature, you know, Solomon was this, the wisest man in the world, but he couldn't control his nature, and there's no mm-hmm. correlation between the two. And so we, you know, we mainly stress that we have a human nature problem, and if that's making our decisions for us, it doesn't matter whether it's alcohol, drugs, jealousy, anger, money, it doesn't matter. Uh, mm. It will get us. And the devil yeah. knows where our weaknesses are. And so basically, in a nutshell, and we do several series right now, we're on the addiction series. And, and we basically talk about uh, just being caught up in your nature ruling you, you know, and and, yeah. and, and uh, the beautiful thing is that God can come into each one of our lives and through his principles and his design laws, he can change us and restore us and we yeah. can become um, new creatures in Christ. Oh, yeah, powerful. you know, what we found was the Bible is not about Solomon's and David's and Moses's and Paul's. 
It's about a God who can take these people who have done despicable things and change them mm-hmm. into people that can write in Holy Scripture. And that boggles my mind, but that's really what the program is about. It's about a God that can take anybody as damaged, as tore up, as weak, as afraid, as broken as we were, or as Paul was, or as David was, or as Solomon was. And God can take people like us and turn it around and and use it for good somehow. That's right. It's mind-boggling. That's right. Susan, uh, again, I feel like I could talk to you guys forever, but with like the last two minutes or so we have left, there's probably somebody out there listening even right now as we speak who is struggling with addiction and thinking, I'll never be able to break free, whether it's drugs or gambling or alcohol or whatever else it might be. Uh, understanding your past, what would you say to someone who's feeling that way right now? That no matter how far you've gone down in your life, that God is able to restore you back to sanity and that there is hope for anybody as well as families who are struggling with people who are, who are um, addicted in one way or the other, that there are tools that are available to each and every one of us, that God works mm-hmm. through many ways um, to, to restore people back into wholeness and one with him. And so we, you know, we have a lot of resources that we offer in our program, and we send them out for free because we've been blessed and been given so much that that's what our little, our little ministry does as well. That's great. And Rich, before I let you guys go, how about to the family member out there who's got a family member that they know is in the throes of addiction? Uh, How maybe can family members help a loved one that they see struggling and that's causing so much pain? Well, well, first off is don't stop praying. Hmm. And second, secondly, Susan and I have found is sometimes don't get in God's way. Because I know Hmm. for her and for, for me, we had to be brought down to the very bottom. Yeah. And uh, yeah. and that's the only way God could get a hold of our hearts. And I think he does that. I think he knocks us all off our horse in some way, shape or form. And so, um, it, you know, it's a, it you can't paint that one with a broad brush. It's very right. hard. Sometimes jail is the right place for someone to go. Yes. So yeah. you never know, you know, and then God's real good at that. He's real good <laughs> at, yeah. at knocking someone off their horse, but not making the light too bright, you know? Yeah, that's a really good word. I know that's probably helpful for somebody out there. Again, this is Rich and Susan Collenberg, co-founders of Just As I Am Ministries. The website is exactly that, justasiamministries.com. That's justasiamministries.com. They've also co-authored a book called Clean, Seven Steps to Freedom. And they're also the hosts of Freedom to Choose, which is heard every Sunday morning at 9 a.m. right here on AM 1160. Uh, Rich and Susan, thank you so much for sharing your story. And I'm sure that people will be blessed through your ministry, uh, through your radio show. This has been a great pleasure. Thanks for joining us today. Thank Thank you you so much for having us. Oh, absolutely. Our pleasure. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.